on the morning of February 10, 1990, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, a bowling alley mechanic named Stephen Turan arrived to work just before 8.30 a.m. Along with him were his two daughters, six-year-old Paula and two-year-old Valerie. The two would be cared for by the bowling alley owner's granddaughter, 12-year-old Melissa Repass, and her friend, 13-year-old Amy Hauser, at the daycare that was located inside of the bowling alley. What happened next is something that continues to haunt the community to this day. This is the story of the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. I'm Ashton, and welcome to The Haunted Corner. Welcome back to the Haunted Corner. Today I have a rough one for you. I don't usually give trigger warnings because I would be doing that every episode, but this one I think needs it. There's violence towards children in this episode. It's really awful, but I feel like it needs to be told, so let's get into it. Saturday, February 10th, 1990, was just like any other day for the residents of Las Cruces, New Mexico, and for 12-year-old Melissa Repass. She spent a lot of her time hanging out at the bowling alley that her grandfather owned. Melissa's mother, Stephanie Sinak, worked as the manager of the bowling alley, and Melissa often helped work in the daycare center that was located within the bowling alley. So parents could bowl while the ki- their kids were babysat in a safe place at the bowling alley. This is very 1990s. <laughs> so that morning, Melissa and her friend, 13-year-old Amy Hauser, were going to be working in the daycare center like they had done previously. Stephanie was going about her typical morning duties, opening the bowling alley. This is about 40 minutes before the bowling alley opened. Also in the building at the time was the bowling alley's cook, Ida Hogwin, who was also prepping for the day. Junior league games were scheduled to start at 9 o'clock a.m., so it was going to be a big day at the bowling alley. A 26-year-old mechanic and father named Stephen Turan was on his way to, the bo- to work at the bowling alley with his two young daughters in tow. Stephen had given his two weeks notice, and he had intended to drop his daughters off at another daycare, but they weren't able to that day, so he brought six-year-old Valerie and two-year-old Paula along to be cared for by Melissa and Amy in the daycare center as well. Stephen's brother Anthony was having some mechanical trouble and agreed to bring the car by the bowling alley that afternoon so Stephen could take a look. Stephanie's brother, Steve Sinak, also worked at the bowling alley. He worked the night before and had returned to the bowling alley on the morning of February 10th to get a backpack that he had left there the night before. As he was leaving, he noticed two men walking towards the entrance of the bowling alley. Around 8.20 a.m., two men entered the bowling alley and found Melissa and Amy, as well as Ida. They forced the three to go to the office where Stephanie was doing the daily deposit. 
The two men were holding 22 caliber pistols, and they forced Stephanie to open the safe. As they started loading money into a briefcase, Stephen Turan and his daughters walked into the office. They, too, were forced onto the floor, and the men opened fire on all of the people that were in the office. There were three adults, Stephanie, the manager, Ida, the cook, and Stephen, the mechanic, and the rest of the victims were children, Melissa, Amy, and Stephen's two young daughters. They were only six and two years old. The men fired 25 shots into the victims at point-blank range, execution style. The men gathered up what little money the bowling alley had, which was only about four to $5,000. They then set some papers on fire in the office before fleeing the scene. Despite being shot five times, Melissa, this amazing, brave girl, was able to call 911. The call came in at 8.33 a.m. I'm going to play a portion of the call, and I will link to the full call on the blog post for the episode where the sources and photos will also be listed. It is really hard to listen to, but I think it's important to show how amazing Melissa was and the strength that she had in this moment. If you don't want to hear it, you can skip forward about two minutes. As Melissa was on the phone with 911, Las Cruces Police Department Detective Chuck Franco, who was assigned to the Criminal Investigations Division, had just put on a pot of coffee and was getting ready for the day. His sergeant called and told him to get down to the bowling alley where there had been a shooting. Franco, along with other authorities, rushed to the scene, and nothing could have prepared them for what they would find when they arrived. Melissa's friend Amy was pronounced dead at the scene, as well as Stephen and his daughter Paula. Valerie initially survived the attack, however, she was pronounced dead at the hospital. Melissa, Ida, and Stephanie all survived the attack and were rushed to Memorial General Hospital. In the midst of putting out the fire and rendering aid to the victims, first responders inadvertently destroyed a lot of evidence at the scene. They used fire extinguishers to put out the fire that had been set in the office, and they also dragged bodies to safer areas of the building, which, of course, saved lives, um, but it also could have extinguished evidence. 
there were some footprints found at the scene, but aside from that, there wasn't a, a whole lot of other physical evidence. Melissa and Ida were able to describe to authorities the two men they saw and multiple agencies assisted in setting up roadblocks on all roads leading out of Las Cruces. Stephanie's brother Steve also provided a description of the two men that he saw walking towards the bowling alley on the morning of the murders. Over some time, the suspect's descriptions would be a young Hispanic man, 29 or 30 years old, 5 foot 10 inches tall, weighing 170 pounds with dark wavy hair, light colored eyes, and no accent when he spoke. And the other suspect was described as an older Hispanic man described as 45 or 50 years old, 5 foot 7 inches tall, weighing about 140 pounds with thinning salt and pepper hair, a dark complexion, and a slight Spanish accent when he spoke. Police believe they fled the bowling alley in a green four-wheel drive vehicle, possibly a van. Composite sketches of the two men were drawn and distributed. Other than the three initial survivors, there is only one other recorded witness. A report claimed that a man across the street on the ladder painting a building told police he saw two men crossing Amador Avenue and running south. Later in the day, police brought Steve Sinak to a van they'd stopped at one of the roadblocks. Inside the van were men who might have been the suspects from the massacre, and they were also in possession of a lot of cash. They asked Steve to verify whether any of the men inside were the same men he'd seen earlier, but he wasn't able to provide a positive ID, and without anything to hold the men on, the police had no choice to let th- but to let them go. While the Las Cruces Police Department turned out in force with help from Customs and Border Patrol, they were unsuccessful. Authorities received more than 100 tips an hour in the aftermath of the shooting, but despite this, the roadblocks came down around 2.30 p.m., and no arrests had been made. While the search for the suspects continued, rumors and speculation began to swirl about who may have been the intended target of the attack and what could have caused someone to kill a group of innocent people, including children. The total disregard for human life is just disgusting. Many people began to speculate the shooting was somehow connected to the owner of the bowling alley, Ron Sinak. He had a dubious reputation with alleged ties to active cartels in the region. Investigators also learned that the owner's younger son, R.J. Sinak, had a, a drug habit. Anthony Turan, Steve Turan's brother, spoke to the Silver City Daily Press in 2014, seeming to acknowledge the Sinak's questionable, questionable business relationships. He said, quote, You know, my brother and I used to go to that bowling alley often. We knew Ron Sinak, the owner, and we noticed he had friends and buddies often hanging out there who seemed strange to us. End quote. This theory really makes sense to a lot of people. Las Cruces is only 41 miles from the Mexican border, so it wouldn't be that difficult for these men to com- commit this horrific crime, get in and out and back to Mexico before anyone knew it happened. But then again, these men could have come from anywhere, gotten in and out and back to wherever they came from before the roadblocks went up, or they could have chosen to stay in the area and lay low until the roadblocks came down and then flee the area. The bowling alley massacre came less than a month after Salvador Lozano, a 
the gas station attendant died of a single bullet fired into the back of his head. His hands were bound and police said $500 was stolen from the Las Cruces service station where he worked. His widow gave birth to a baby girl two days after he died. His killer has not been found. However, the police don't believe the two events were related, but many people thought that it was possible that it was. Now, if you remember, in episode 11, we covered the Austin yogurt shop murders that occurred in 1991. And when I was researching for that episode, I came across information about the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre and how some people speculated that the two might be related. They were 22 months apart, not that far apart. So some people theorized that they might be connected. Along with other facts that pointed to the massacre being something other than a robbery gone wrong, according to American Crime Journal, Ida Holguin later reported that she'd seen the men before. They had been in the bowling alley prior to the massacre, perhaps studying the business hours or employees. She said the men, quote, were looking for something before they went to the safe. So, like, they weren't only there for the money. The Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre case eventually went cold as investigators followed leads that led to nothing but dead ends. Melissa made a full recovery. She recalled on the America's Most Wanted episode that she had her hands on her head and she believes that that is what saved her life. Melissa's mother, Stephanie, survived the initial attack, but tragically she died nine years later from complications from the injuries that she sustained in the attack. Ida was featured on an episode of I Survived in which she described how she thinks of the attack every single day. She was left with bullet fragments inside of her brain, and at one point, she was taking 26 medications per day. These amazing survivors, their strength is just so inspiring. Family members were left with more questions as the years passed. Anthony Turan said he'd like Stephen... Paul, Valerie, Amy, and Stephanie to be remembered as people, not just a statistic. He said, quote, hey, they went to the same restaurants we went to. They played in the same parks you did. They lived and they spent time in the stores just like you did. They laughed and they cried and they were people who were part of the community. They're not a statistic. They're people that lived there who didn't deserve to be taken away like they were. He continued, quote, do I think it was only a robbery that led to these deaths? Not really. I mean, if those two men could look a little two-year-old girl in the eye and then shoot her in the forehead, they were after something other than money. I believe they were sending a message. End quote. In 2016, he was interviewed in the Las Cruces Sun newspaper where he said, quote, In this day and age, things like this don't go unsolved. How did we not get these guys? That's the question I ask myself every day. Numerous people saw these gunmen gunmen, so someone out there knows something and they need to come forward, end quote. The police still think they can crack the case, and they are hopeful that modern technology, most of which was unavailable in 1990, will help solve the crime. Public Information Officer Dan Trujillo said the police believe, quote, there is still somebody out there who knows what happened, end quote. For the 30-year anniversary of the case, Las Cruces Crime Stoppers announced a $30,000 reward for information that helps identify the men responsible for the mass shooting. 
Tips can be provided anonymously by calling Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Tips can also be provided online at nmcrimestoppers.org or through the Crime Stoppers app. If you know something that might help solve this horrific crime, no matter how small it might seem, please come forward. The victims deserve justice in this senseless crime. The victims were Stephen Turan and his daughters Paula and Valerie, 13-year-old Amy Hauser, Stephanie Sinak, Melissa Repass, and Ida Holguin. And that is the story of the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for tuning in today. The sources for the episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. I will link to the blog post in the show notes as well. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head on over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes, early and ad-free access to episodes, plus a lot more. And you'll be helping support the show. We're an independent podcast, and it would mean a lot. So head over to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend and rate and review wherever you listen because it helps support the show as well. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves and we'll see you soon. Bye.